This evening's talk <clears throat> is about Samvega, the Pali word that is usually uh, translated as spiritual urgency. And beginning with a few questions. Why do we practice? Why do you practice? What are the seeds that bring you to a spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat such as this retreat? So, a few more questions. (laughs) Some of which have probably visited your heart and your mind. Questions that, in fact, humans have felt and asked forever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, we could say. The deep questionings, the deep yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What's life about? What's death? Its significance, its meaning. Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be really, truly happy? and at ease in this life. Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life right now with all of the challenges and all of the difficulties in this changing world, in this changing country, with all of the challenges within me and all around me, right now, in this very life. What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I in this retreat right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up or about mulling or stewing over these questions or these types of questions, but rather these questions can be taken as a motivating force and can be taken in as an inspiration towards connecting to and uh, dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So this evening's talk, as I've mentioned, is about an urgency to awaken. And as I've already mentioned, the Pali word for this is samvega, which is most often translated as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's kind of difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different uh, mind states. In the classical text, the force or the energy, we could say, of Samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the classical texts go on to say that Samvega is also about one being moved 
to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So samvega is the urgency to practice and the urgency for many people who practice to awaken. And I think it's important to note at this point that spiritual urgency or samvega is an energy that's not really at all fraught with any kind of tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind, a quality of heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, understanding the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. So I'd like to take a look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing and in seeing and knowing the mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and passing away continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its more subtle manifestations and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Also the death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move us towards an urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And for some of you, this sense of urgency may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges challenges in life. The suffering in life from this perspective in general, in the the big picture, or maybe more, much more specifically through the various permutations of the hardships and challenges that you face in your own life. For some of us, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or prejudice, judgment in relationship to race, culture, economic circumstances, gender, age, or sexual preference.
and along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague or maybe really not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way. And an urge to move towards this other way. Many of us practice. Come to practice. When Samvega first stirs us, it often can be an emotional state. And an emotional state that can be somewhat difficult or disturbing until it really begins to find a, a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. An important point to recognize and really to acknowledge is that continuing all along the way of our practice. Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice through all the years of our practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or another, or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often jarring and violent reactions that are perpetuated from all sides because of this misunderstanding and confusion. Samvega is the movement of the heart. It's really an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of formal meditation practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart, a response to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of samvega that stirs and moves me again and again towards letting go towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle it is, of clinging to anything.
when samvek is present, it sometimes is experienced as an ardency, an inspired heart, an inspired mind, a passion for spiritual practice, we could say, and something that I'm sure at least some of you or or maybe all of you have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe, what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's safe to say that this is really true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of all of us being here together right now. Yogis and teachers. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this, even if it's just for a very short time. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So, even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us and keeps moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice. There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face, face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation and living in a kind of make-believe world. And this is the account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or more than a metaphorical story. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four really very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so much in our time and in our culture, uh, the many and quite obvious truth-seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. But I have to say they're growing in our culture. Definitely growing many more, many more of us. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before. 
to such a degree, in fact, that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his existence and to search for the truth, to search for the true nature of life. He was really profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he, he witnessed as he took in these very common four events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the many familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same for us? Most of the time, with the many times that we've seen these same messengers in our life, both outwardly and inwardly, many times we've reacted. Reacted by ignoring them, by distracting ourselves in myriad ways about, by where we go and what we do, how we spend our time. So for instance, all of the various ways that we react by what we do to the various aspects of our aging body. Just consider your own reaction and what you do to the various aspects, however young or old you are, of your aging body. Or maybe we've reacted to these messengers by pretending or believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that we stop reacting. We respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth seek a path of wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than by constantly feeling overrun with maybe sadness, anguish, or fear, or being contracted with emotional states of attachment, or anger, or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. I mean, truly, aren't our closest surroundings full of stirring things? Stirring in the sense of samvega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, 
Isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that, in fact, render our vision dull, render our heart to some degree insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen for some of us in relationship to the Buddha's teachings. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual and emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times even this impetus can lose its freshness, lose its impelling force. And maybe some of you have experienced this. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and the fullness of life all around us which, if we look really carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, which, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look really carefully into this fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we begin to see and to sense the cause, the origin, we could say, of this unsatisfactoriness this, what is often called, translated as suffering, dukkha. This is the second of the four noble truths. Again, put very simply, it's essentially the clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And then the third noble truth. The truth that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering. There's really a solution to this predicament. The solution being simply said, not so easy in practice, to not cling. It's that simple. (laughs) Not cling. But rather to just see things utterly, clearly, and simply be with them just as they are and then act or respond we could say to life from this place as life unfolds this place of not clinging and the fourth truth the fourth noble truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path the path of practice that was offered by the Buddha. That 
each one of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace. Right here, right now, in this very life. In this very retreat. And as some of you, I'm sure, have experienced. And sometimes maybe quite unexpectedly. A degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. Just kind of seemingly show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing, sensing and seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning or clinging, and the self-identification, often very strong self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive patterns. Or insight or understanding or wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long, accustomed, or maybe a new sight, or the direct experience of some manifestation of poverty or prejudice or observing a weeping child or directly encountering, engaging with a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to a connection with the physical or emotional or mental illness of a loved one. Or, of course, myriad other flavors of our human experience. With any of these experiences, any of them, having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our response to really sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through sensing, seeing our own experiences of body and mind very directly, clearly, and more and more subtly. We might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available for each of us all the time at any moment. So, for instance, a moment of, or maybe successive moments, of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly, constantly changing nature of bodily sensations, mental states, or a moment knowing, intuitively knowing, it's all impersonal, it's all anatta the Pali word for not-so. Mental 
and physical phenomena just absolutely and naturally, very naturally, arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. It's the way of things. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path. Go deeper towards the end of suffering. Or, depending on circumstances, our own circumstances in life and the circumstances of our practice, we may be really urgently stirred to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories uh, regarding our life as a whole. Stories that in fact often exhibit uh, uh, the, this knowing and this manifestation of Samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during our practice meetings. There are quite a number of wonderful uh, stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual energy, urgency, energy and urgency. And the stirring either being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the enlightened disciples, the Arahants, or one of the practicing devas. And if some of you may not know, devas are uh, beings uh, whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, and sometimes many long length, long length of time, in very beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering aren't yet fully free of dissatisfaction. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called The Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, kept on thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited this particular woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, Desiring his good and desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you enter the woods. 
yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove the desire for people, then you'll be happy and devoid of lust. And in this case, lust, not necessarily meaning sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for objects, lust for various experiences. And the Deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a yogi, a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. Were it that easy? <laughs> the next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddhist Parinibbana, after his death, and his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda had been very strongly encouraged to attain full enlightenment, attain arhantship, before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin uh, during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone uh, to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people who lived in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt obligated to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. Well, the forest-dwelling deva who lived there in that area, aware of the upcoming uh, Buddhist council, that, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could only succeed if Ananda attended it as a fully enlightened being, came to provoke and to inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking to Ananda. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. So the deva says, meditate, Gotama. And don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? (laughs) Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. Well, I picked this particular dialogue because though we're not in the same position as Ananda was, um, we're certainly often caught up and quite seduced Uh, by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose 
our practice and instead go for these things. Go for the hollow blue. To me, this little verse really beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not, of course, to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. I've come to appreciate that word. So another verse. On one occasion, a bhikkhuni was dwelling in Visali at a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? So pitiful. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse, in this verse. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited this same woodland out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense uh, of samvega, spoke to this bhikkhu in verse and said, because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, and meaning this means uh, having relinquished, uh, having let go of attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasant. So having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, said the deva, meaning attending to the true nature of these things, their true characteristics, with very careful attention as impermanent, as not-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts in the teacher, and in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma and on the Sangha and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture 
and happiness as well. And then when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of virtue. The last verse that I'd like to share with you this evening is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, this monk would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, hmm, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this uh, bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. The title of this a little uh, sutta part, this part of the sutta is called The Thief of Scent. <laughs> so this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, This is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar, so for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, of one, one of such rough behavior, why is this one not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that one. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil, appears as big as a cloud. And then the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me, Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And then the Deva responds. When I first read this last response, I was really surprised. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that Bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems um, that amongst those of us then and now, those of us who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it kind of seems like things haven't changed very much. (laughs) Our human predicament crosses time and crosses cultures. The teachings really are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant now, today, 
as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samveg is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy. The Pali word for this is virya and courage. And this helps the development and the blossoming of the heart qualities of faith, sada in Pali, and confidence, pasada in Pali. Each of these qualities or capacities, uh, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are really essential to helping us to break through what for some of you might be some sense of timidity or a sense of hesitation or maybe even stronger in the same realm, fear or maybe possibly doubt doubt yourself, doubt the teachings or maybe for some a degree of complacency the Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse Samvega. In speaking to a group of his disciples in one sutta, he says, Rouse yourself. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. For those afflicted by disease, disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there, he says. And again he says, rouse yourselves, sit up, resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. And he goes on. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And then he goes on and says, Negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about, we could say, keeping one foot out of the mainstream and on the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, on the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of this unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth and aging and death, which is actually occurring moment by moment by moment in our life, breath by breath. That not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're asked to 
also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of this cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from this gift of the first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we really know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from some outside experience, some outside being, but that it's coming from in here, in here in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind and heart. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to this suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular beautiful and clear qualities of mind, particular and beautiful, clear qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, courage, joy, happiness, Tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities, all of these capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a very practical solution. A solution that's in fact within the power of every human being. And a solution that many of you here have under or have faith in and or are beginning to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying many of the stories and teachings, and the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really, most importantly, that you've come to know through your own direct experience, through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament develops and deepens, 
for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to um, share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. Some of you have heard this from me before. It's a wonderful story. And uh, I found it to be very inspiring. Uh, And it invoked in me quite a spiritual urgency the first time that I read it. And every time I tell it, that happens again. It moves me every time. So these are a few excerpts uh, from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one while before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of a chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk, our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else, a clearing blow to the gut. It also was a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading. But he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasel's, open to time and death painlessly. 
noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly like like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you, then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should. And I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words that were offered to his monks and monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to really keep going along the path. And this particular quote uh, is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I found to be uh, quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent are of the nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether animate or inanimate, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. 
I am about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, we come right back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver, in her own unique way, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshoppers? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one while? and precious life. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.